people. But also, I want to make sure it's presented correctly. So, Father, we pray together over this word tonight, Lord, that you will come speak through me and let everything be accomplished tonight through this word that needs to be done. I'm asking you by the mighty anointing, the, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that people will be able to give you their best ear and their focus and get locked in to what you're speaking, to what you're, what you're, um, the revelation you're releasing, what you're wanting us to understand. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us, Lord, to be able to have eyes to see and ears to hear, to have good, fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives. And, Lord, allow this, that you come upon me and speak through me and help that everything is said, everything's explained right, everything will go forth the way it needs to, that you want it to. That it will be living seeds of truth sown into good, fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives, watered by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. Lord, I pray for great wisdom and revelation to be released, and that, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, help us, Lord, in River of Life and beyond to those that we're going to be ministering to, that there will really be a release of wisdom and revelation by your Spirit of truth that really gets into people. They really understand it. It's not just something that's heard in passing, but we want your word and your truth to really get established in us, Lord. So I pray you get this in us and let, let it be as light shining that will dispel any darkness and lies and deception of the enemy and bring truth and revelation. So we commit it unto you. We bind the enemy that would try to hinder. We command to go in Jesus' name. We break his power. But Lord, let everything be accomplished and through this word that your will be done, that the winds of your spirit carry this everywhere it needs to go. And let your holy angels push back the tides of darkness and protect what you're wanting to see happen. We bless you, Lord, and thank you for it now in Jesus' mighty name. So everybody, look this way and give me your best ear. I'm telling you now that this, this could be um, a bit challenging to explain everything. So if y'all would, please work with me in this and help me. A little, just a little bit of moving around as possible. And I'm going to do my best to present this tonight, but it's, it can be complicated, so I'm wanting it to not be. All right, so let's picture right now that me, and since Zach isn't here tonight, well, we'll pick on him. All right, let's say me and Zach were both going on a vacation to Israel, but we were going two different trips, but we were going to be there at the same time. He was going to have his own flight, his own journey there. And I was having mine. We were independent of each other. But both of us were going to the same place for the same week. All right, y'all follow me? And so let's say that somebody comes up to me and says, Pastor Scott, listen, I know that you were going. And I wanted to bless you, so I got you a plane ticket. And he said, I even, I even paid for you to be in first class. And I put you on a really nice plane where, you know, it's, it's going to be comfortable. It's going to be a really good flight. They, they're going to, you know, cook the nice meals and everything that you don't see anymore, right? It's going to be a really nice flight. And I was like, wow, thank you, man. I really appreciate that. So my journey is going to be really amazing. And let's just say that Brother Zach ended up um, going coach. And it was an old plane, kind of rickety. And um, you felt every bump on that journey, right? A lot of turbulence. It was really filled to capacity. And um, they, they didn't cook anything nice. They just throw the bag of peanuts at you. All right. So his journey. There, now, we're both going to the same place. Same vacation. We're going to be there at the same time. But my journey there and his journey there are very, very different. 
Okay. That is where I'm coming from when I talk about these Hebrew roots and understanding about blessing Israel and understanding these truths. Your journey there, we're both going to heaven. We're both going to get there. Those that are true Christians, we're both going to get there. But those that don't understand about blessing Israel and don't understand these Hebrew roots and don't understand what I'm talking about, our journeys are going to be very, very different. Does that make sense tonight? So whenever you understand about blessing Israel and you understand these things, it's going to make a huge difference in the quality of your life. Okay. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and dive into this. I'm going to explain these things as I go. There's, there's quite a bit of different angles I want to take. And let me say up front that any time, and I know you guys are not going to get this in River of Life, obviously, but there may be some groups out there that teach that you need to do certain things to be saved, you know, like... Um, well, in this specific sermon, I'm going to be dealing with these, the Hebrew calendar and these certain times like the Sabbath and the turn of the Hebrew month and the Bible and the feast days. And maybe they were to teach that you, you have to do these things to be saved or you have to do these things to be right with God. That's not true. So don't ever listen to that. That's not true. And that's not where we're coming from. We're saved by our faith in Christ alone. That's it. Okay, when you put your faith in him, there's a new birth. And there's a washing of his blood, washing away your sins. And by virtue of that, you're on your way to heaven. You're saved. So I'm not, I'm not talking about being saved. I'm not talking about being right with God. I don't believe people that maybe um, keep some of these things. I know we as a church do. But I do not believe that whether you do or don't, I don't believe that that has anything to do with whether or not you're right with God or you're more spiritual or you're better than anybody, whether you do or don't do these things. None of that is there, okay? But I do believe that there are some benefits. The Apostle Paul said that these things in particular, now this is what I'm focusing on tonight, but he talked about the Sabbath and the new moon and the feast. He said, these things are a shadow of what we have today. It's a shadow of things to come. Now, if you were to see me standing here, I don't think that I have a shadow up here that you can see, but if you could see my shadow, my shadow is going to look like me, and my shadow, if you follow it, it's going to lead to me, but it's not me. It's just a shadow. And so, in the Old Testament times, everything in the Old Testament was a shadow of Christ. Everything pointed to him. Everything led to him. And when you can see it that way, there's a depth. Let me give you another example. Let's say that I was, um, I'm not this great artist or anything like that, okay? There are some people that are, even in this room, that do really good with that. I'm not one of those. But if you draw out, you know, you drew out something, if somebody was an artist and are really good, they can take and they can put shadows to that. And as they pencil in all those shadows, they can make that thing look third dimensional they they can really make it look amazing provide depth to it and that's what the shadows do when you properly understand the old testament from a new testament perspective and jesus said this and it was very important he said i've not come to do away with the law but fulfill it that's what people need to understand 
And I think a lot of the church out there, the, the Western um, Gentile church, they have their roots back in the Catholic system. And unfortunately, they don't understand a lot of the depth. I know a lot of churches will never talk about, never read from, never you know, go into anything in the Old Testament. But you're not fully going to understand the New Testament without understanding the Old. I can't sidetrack on this too long, but just to give you an example, people, if somebody would say Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, that's not going to make sense to somebody unless they understand the Lamb of God that was sacrificed in the Old Testament for the sins of people and the nation. Then it's like, oh, now I understand what they're saying. Do you see what I mean? So there has to be this understanding of the old to really understand the new properly. We need that depth. We need our roots. And it's out of the Old Testament, the Hebrew roots, it's out of the soil of that that Christianity has sprung up. And so that's the, that's the groundwork that's laid, okay? All right, so with all of that said, now let's dive into this. So Leviticus 23, 1 through 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The feast of the Lord, which you are to proclaim holy convocations, even these are my appointed feast. Now I want you to notice here that God said these are my feast. Now this is a big deal when I'm telling you. Because most of the time people think, oh, well, this is something Jewish. It's something in the Old Testament. No, God said these are mine. He didn't say these were Israel's feasts. These are my feast. Number one. Number two, he said, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feast of the Lord which you proclaim are holy convocation. These are my feasts, and it will be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So we see in several different places through there, it says that this will be a perpetual statute throughout all generations. So please hear me when I say this. These things were a shadow and a type of what Christianity has in the fullness. But they are God's feasts, God's times, and they were to be observed throughout all generations. It's never going to stop. And I'm just telling you, if you read the book of Zechariah, this is a good example in Zechariah 14, 16 to 18. Jesus, when he comes in the future to rule and reign for a thousand years on the earth, the Bible clearly says that these feast days are still going to be there. And it specifically says about the Feast of Tabernacles that the nations of the earth will come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles. And it says the, the nations that refuse to come, there will not be rain on their land. And so this is something that is going to continue into the millennial reign of Christ, and I believe on and on into even the new Jerusalem. I don't believe these things are ever going to stop. So all that I'm trying to do in presenting this to you is present something that I believe are eternal truths that are going to continue on. Into the millennial reign of Christ, these things are going to be going on. All right. So I'm going to get a little deep tonight, but I'm going to do my best to explain all of this. So these are God's feasts, and they're to be observed throughout all generations. That's why they're still going today, and they're still going to be going when Jesus comes, okay? So here's something interesting. Those that like astronomy tonight, the, you know, the planets and, and all of that, I'm going to be dealing a little bit with that. But you do need to understand some things to understand the Bible. In Genesis 1.14... God created the sun, moon, and stars. 
Now, this is, this is really interesting right here. When it says God created the sun, moon, and stars, that he put them there, the English translators put for signs and for seasons. But here's what you got to understand. The word there for signs is uh, Strong's number 226, and it means, it's O-W-T-H in the Hebrew. And it's a sign meaning that like a billboard, that God was going to use the sun, moon, and stars to be like a billboard that he was going to speak to the earth through these signs in the heavens. And Jesus said that in the New Testament that there would be signs in the heavens and signs on the earth below. So this is something that God is doing. There are going to be signs in the heavens. He's going to be communicating to the earth. And when it translates for seasons, that's not necessarily the absolute best translation. I can see why they did it, but it's not the best. The word there in Hebrew is moed, M-O-E-D. And when you do moedim, the I-M is just plural, okay? But the moed, and that's Strong's number 4150. And the moed is this, it's the feast. It has to do with the feast of the Lord. So God was saying, I'm putting the sun, moon, and stars in this up there, that they're going to be a sign to you. I'm going to communicate. I'm going to speak to the earth through these things. And I put them there for, for the different feast days that they will mark the beginning and the ending of feast days. They're there to set apart these times. Isn't that interesting? The Moedim. Because feast will begin... Many times you read about the new moon or Passover, it's at the full moon. And it's connected to these signs in the heavens. And also the Bible says, when you, I just read this to you out of Leviticus 1 through, uh, 23, 1 through 2. But it says that these would be holy convocations. And the word there is mikra in Hebrew. And it means dress rehearsals. So let me give you an example. For 1,500 years, understanding that America is only about 250 years old, okay? So 1,500 years, Israel was keeping Passover, and every year at Passover, they were sacrificing a Passover lamb, and it was a dress rehearsal every year for 1,500 years because there would come a day when Jesus would come to the earth And on Passover that day, not the day before, not the day after, on Passover, Jesus, being the Lamb of God, would be sacrificed. It was a rehearsal, a holy convocation that this was going on year after year after year to prepare for the coming of Jesus. In Numbers 9, 2 through 3, God has his appointed times and seasons. So we live... In society right now, we live with a solar calendar, but the biblical calendar is a lunar calendar, and I'm going to explain that tonight. And the lunar calendar and the solar calendar are completely different, okay? So let's just say, for example, and this is why it's important, let's say that I was working on the East Coast, maybe Virginia Beach or something, that that's where I work. But let's say a couple times a month, 
I had to fly all the way to the west coast of California, and I had to be there for about four days, and I had to do work there in that office, and it happened every single month. I had to go twice. Now, anybody that knows about the time change there, you know that in the east coast, it's an hour ahead of us here, and in the west coast, it's two hours back. So you're looking at a three-hour difference. And this was happening every month. I had to fly twice and stay there for four days. Now, I'm still trying to call my family in Virginia Beach. I'm still trying to communicate with the office in Virginia Beach. But understanding while I was in California that there was a three-hour difference. And so this was getting confusing. I mean, I'm having to plan my flights. I'm having to, you know, maybe rent a car or, or get people to pick me up. And I had to, to settle it in my mind, the time change. Every time I called my family, I had to realize, okay, they're three hours ahead of me. I can't call them at 10 o'clock because it's going to be one in the morning. And whenever I called the office, I couldn't wait till four in the afternoon because they'd be closed. I had to, you know, I had to keep that in mind. So I had to keep in my mind two completely different time schedules. So I really needed to get two different watches. One watch was set East Coast time and one watch set west coast time and that way in my mind i could help differentiate and i'd be able to do my job adequately now with that said we're living in this solar calendar system but god is speaking and communicating through his biblical calendar which is the hebrew calendar and it's lunar and so there are two completely different things and though we're living in this solar calendar we're going to have to be aware of the lunar calendar. So I'm going somewhere with this. There's no doubt in the early church, um, well, first off, Jesus, there's no doubt, I don't think anybody would argue that Jesus kept Sabbath, um, the new moon, the feast, and he even was specifically referenced in keeping Hanukkah in John 10.22. I believe everybody knows that. But even after Jesus raised from the dead and ascended, the early church would have kept these things. And we have record of it. Um, Paul kept and uh, he encouraged the Gentile church of Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5. He told them in dealing with sin, he said to purge the yeast out of their midst. But listen to what he said. He encouraged them, he said, keep the festival, but not with leaven. Purge the leaven out of your midst, that you will be unleavened bread. But he told them, keep the festival. And he's referring to Passover. And he's referring to the yeast being sin and purging the sin out and keeping the feast. And I don't believe it was just a reference to Passover. I believe it was also the communion table because the communion tables come out of Passover. And we also see that Paul... In Acts 20.16 says that he was going to do his best to get to Jerusalem at Pentecost time. Why? Because that was the time that people were supposed to go to Jerusalem. And he was going to try to be there for the feast. In John in the book of Revelation, which was written uh, quite a bit after the death of Jesus. This was, this was way later. John still was referencing on the Isle of Patmos. Here he was, a Jew, probably amongst Gentiles. And he's in prison on that island and he's getting the uh, angels of the Lord coming to him and giving him the book of Revelation. But it was interesting to me that he still 
referenced the Sabbath day and said that the Lord had appeared to him on the Lord's day, on the Sabbath. So the early church, I believe with all my heart, had really strong understanding of their Hebrew roots. And this is something, if you guys can understand this, this is something I really feel with all my heart that Satan has stolen from the church. I believe during the dark ages when the Catholic church came to power, that this was something that Satan stole from the church. For the first 13 years, thousands of people were Christians, but for the first 13 years of the church, it was primarily in Jerusalem and surrounding areas, and it was 100% Jewish people. 13 years later is when the angel appeared to Cornelius, and um, Peter went to Cornelius' house, and that's when the gospel began to go to the Gentiles. But even in that, I believe with all my heart that Paul and and others were trying to teach them about the things of God. And in that, they were teaching them about their Hebrew roots. Um, I believe it's something Satan stole. Now, in the book of Acts, there's a prophecy in the book of Acts that says that until the restoration of all things takes place. And I believe before Jesus comes, that everything Satan has stolen from the church is going to be restored back. That's that prophecy in Acts. The restoration of all things. Everything that's been stolen. All the, the power of the Holy Spirit, all the understanding, all of this is going to be restored back to those that are open to it. There's always going to be people that reject things. But it's still going to be made available to the body of Christ. All right, so this is part, I believe, as we're living in the end times of God restoring back all things. And this is something God's really laid on my heart. And there are many out there, I thank God for people that that are very public, like uh, John Hagee and and Perry Stone and others that are on television. I believe Larry Huck as well and many others that, that are teaching along these lines. I thank God for that because it's getting out there. But this is something that will really help the body of Christ. So I'm going to do my best here to explain why I believe these things are beneficial to Christians. Because some people might say, well, look, you know, I'm saved. My sins are forgiven. Um, why is this even an issue? Why, why are these things important at all? I mean, why not just ignore all of it? Well, you can, and you can still go to heaven. But I believe that there's benefits. And so let me explain what I mean. Number one... The best way to explain this would be to kind of go from the negative to the positive. So you're just going to have to please work with me. But my wife would be a really good example in this area about the holy times. All right, so everybody knows my wife's testimony. And her family was in the occult and Satanism, witchcraft, and all that negative stuff, okay? And so her family connected her or connected that whole family back then to the satanic calendar system, okay? And when Sandy, when God brought her into my life, you know, I took and we went through what we call the deliverance questionnaire together, and we walked through deliverance, and we renounced, I had her renounce everything that was in her family, etc. And going through that deliverance questionnaire and really praying through those things, 
all the legal open doors of the enemy was shut by the blood of Jesus. And that made a huge difference. I mean, a huge difference. Her life was so much more free. And even though she had some wonderful men of God that tried to help her in the past before that, um, they just didn't understand these things specifically about the deliverance ministry. And they helped her a lot, but that was an area that God had prepared me so that I could help her with that. All right. So that was kind of phase number one. Then as I began to pray, God taught me a lot about the deep consecration. Now that was what I preached on the last two weeks about being deeply consecrated unto God. The difference between just being saved but becoming a vessel of honor and being really deeply consecrated. So through the power of the communion table, the power of immersion, the power of anointing her with oil, and really praying together about things, God deeply consecrated her unto him. And that made another huge difference. See, around the times, even if we didn't keep up with it, but around the times of the satanic calendar when Satan's people are doing things, there was a time many years ago, okay, where maybe she would still have nightmares and there'd kind of be just a strange feeling. We might have some things kind of circling the property, if you will. And stuff like that was going on. But as I deeply consecrated her unto God, a lot of that subsided. It was like the, the power of God. It was like there was something that got in between her and that spiritual warfare and really set her apart. But you could still sense in, the, in those satanic times, you could still kind of sense like the dark clouds in the distance. you know. <laughs> and so I'm trying to show you. The first phase was complete deliverance huge difference the second phase was a deep consecration unto god but i would say that when things were completely totally done like the final nail in the coffin if you will was when i began to connect her to god's calendar and what i mean by that is this what i've learned in deliverance is that you don't need to just break something and leave it like a void leave it empty you need to replace it because if there's ever a void there satan will still try to reclaim that ground like if you break a curse you need to release the blessing of god if you cast demons out you need to pray the holy spirit fill that area you need to replace things you really do and so i had really prayed and kind of disconnected her from the satanic um feast and things that are going on there was a disconnect but there was still kind of this looming darkness at times but whenever i connected her to god's calendar that went away completely because what happened was now used to even on those satanic times you would feel something begin to kind of stir in the atmosphere but that's gone and that's been gone and now instead of that whenever god's days are upon us now we can feel the increase of his presence. And it's like you can feel his blessing and his presence connected to his holy times, but it's like God connected us to that calendar and what he's doing and fully disconnected her from Satan's calendar and what Satan is doing. So the first thing I would say is why these holy times? Why, why would a Sabbath day be important? Why would, like the Bible talks about the new moon where it's the turn of the Hebrew month, Why would that be anything? Why the feast times? Well, number one, I believe that it helps to connect us to God's timetable. 
Uh, for example, I know in my family there's been Freemasonry, and there's, there's something in Freemasonry that is so satanic. And it, it's a connection to Satan's kingdom and his satanic timing, or so to speak, you know. But as, as you renounce that and you disconnect from that, you, there's something about that calendar system of the enemy that once people are connected to that, they need to disconnect, but now they need to connect to the things of God. And, and not just be kind of be in limbo. And so I believe that this helps people to really connect with God's timing and what God's doing. And it replaces that satanic calendar in people's lives. And some people don't need it. Some people have not had ancestry that was involved in, in like Native Americans or Freemasonry or um, Islam or, or uh, you know, other things like the occult. But this is something that can really connect you. The second thing I would say is that the eyes of your understanding being opened because God is not speaking through the Gregorian calendar that we have he's speaking through the Hebrew calendar so for us to really understand what he's saying we need to grasp the Hebrew calendar because that is what he's speaking through and let me give you an example I've got all these pictures in here I want you to go flip the page and look where you see like the, the moon, the lunar phases and all of that. There's a picture at the top that says 2014, 2015. And you'll see like the, the blood moons, okay? For people to understand that the Bible says in the latter days, he said he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. But he said before the coming of the Son of Man, he said, I will turn the moon to blood. And the sun to dark would become dark. And these are obvious references to solar and lunar eclipses. But solar and lunar eclipses kind of happen here and there, and they're, they're not always significant. The only way that you would know that they're significant is when they begin to connect with the feast days. That's why God said, I put the sun, moon, stars as a sign for those feast days there's a connection there and so look at 2014 and 15 on passover and tabernacles of 2014 there were blood moons on those days and you guys remember this and on nisan one which is the turn of the new year biblically there was a solar eclipse then there was a blood moon at passover if I remember right, I think there was a partial eclipse that happened at um, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah. And then there was a super blood moon that happened on Tabernacle, Sukkot of 2015. But see, if people were not keeping up with the Hebrew calendar to know when these feast days are and when these significant times are, they would completely, totally miss what God is saying. Is this making sense tonight? The only way that you're going to know that God is speaking through these things is by understanding that it's going to be through the Hebrew calendar. It's not going to be through the Gregorian calendar. And in times past, when these tetrad of blood moons have fallen like this, for example, 1948, these blood moons hit a few years before that, and then Israel became a nation. Then in 1967, these blood moons happened a few years before that, and then they reclaimed Jerusalem. And I believe that these blood moons 
or ha- happened here recently, and in a few years we're going to know what they're about, okay? But it very well might be, this is just a might be, something to do with their temple because the three big ones, number one, for Jesus to come, Israel had to be a nation. Number two, for Jesus to come, Israel had to capture Jerusalem. But number three, for Jesus to come, they're going to have to rebuild their temple. Okay, so I don't know if it'll be with the temple or not, but it's definitely signs in the heavens that something is up. And I believe that Israel's got some pretty significant wars in front of them, and these blood moons are like a sign of change coming. Something's up. All right? So regarding the holy times, I'm going back now to the notes. I think people can understand this that's been in River of Life now, but there are certain things that you can do that bring blessings upon you. I've said this a lot, but I want to make sure that this gets on the recordings, okay? And I want to thank you guys in River of Life for um, working with me and preaching this because I know some of this about the communion table and other things have been you know, repetitious in River of Life. I know that. But the Lord laid on my heart that I needed to put this in a series and get it out on the internet for other people, okay? All right, so for example, I've used this example a lot, but just bear with me. If somebody was to go out tonight and they were to go visit some, some witch and, you know, have her read, read their palm and, you know, read her little crystal ball about you and, and all the stuff that Madam whatever is going to do to you. Um, but by the fact that you went there to a witch and you participated in these satanic things, it's going to bring a curse on you that was not there before. That's just the way that it is. And so somebody can do something that's bringing a curse on them and that's going to affect them and defile them and even affect their family. Well, the flip side of that is there's certain things that you can do that will bring blessings on you. The Bible was talking about the, the communion table and Paul called it the cup of blessing it's interesting because through communion you're drinking a blessing on yourself but that goes back to the Passover table there's four cups and I've shared this before and I, I will next week as well in the Passover meal but as we partake of those cups it's not just something that's an empty ritual there's something in this that's really powerful and by participating in these things, you're bringing blessings on your life and your family that were not there before. The very first time my wife and I um, had Passover together, she really felt something happen big time in her life. She's probably the first person in her family that ever sat at the Passover table, ever. Something spiritually was happening to her. And let me tell you, I've been now, you know, in the ministry around 20 years, and I've been around Christianity a lot longer than that. And I've seen a lot of church people. And my wife is probably more free spiritually right now than a lot of church people that I've known, a lot. Because she's humbled herself and went through that deliverance questionnaire. She's went through a deep consecration. And I'm telling you, God's done something really awesome in her life. Another thing that can happen with these holy times, if you will, is that it will help purge the gates above you. God is wanting there to be an open heaven over us individually and corporately. 
And let me tell you, as we, I'll share more about this in a moment, but as we as a church spend time corporately, we set apart 21 days this year to pray and fast. And people are really praying and, and, and we're all repenting of anything in our lives we need to repent of. And, and we're really consecrating our lives. And last week I have this consecration service. And now we're going right into Passover. I'm going to tell you what's happening is that the heavens are becoming more clear and more open for the presence of God to invade this place than ever before. Do you see what I'm saying? It's purging the gates above. And those of you that have been here for very long at all, you can all testify that there is an increase of God's presence and power at these times. And you've all experienced it and told me that. Um, one example, I'll, I'll probably never forget this because I felt it really strong, but on Hanukkah, maybe not last year, but the year before, we had a time here when we, we just set apart a night. I, I preached on it. We talked about it. We prayed during Hanukkah time. And the presence of God came in. I mean, the presence of God was this holy, hallowed temple presence of the Lord, if you was very hallowed. I remember feeling it just really strong. And the awesome thing is, when God has brought his presence in like that, it doesn't leave. It's always seemed to linger after that. So it's really awesome because every time we have these, these different feasts, something new of the Lord comes in. But anyway, I remember I was sitting back there and I was talking, and, and Christopher came up to me and told me, he said, Ma'am, he said, I felt like this really hallowed presence of God come in this place tonight. Remember that? And I was like, I know exactly what you're talking about. I felt it too. And at these times, it seems like the gates are being purged and, and there's an increase of God's presence and power. And let me say this, why, why the Hebrew roots? Let me give you a few more things. There's a depth of understanding of God's word and his ways that you're not going to get from just skimming over the epistles and that's it. Okay, when you get back and you, you go and you understand the Hebrew roots and then you read the epistles, there's a depth and an understanding that was not there before. It provides a real depth to the Word of God. And I'll say this too, by doing stuff together, you learn more than just hearing about it. I'm, I mean to tell you, if I was to get up here and just talk about it, you're going to not really remember it, but as you, as you go through a Passover meal and you do it as the Lord's Supper, his, his uh, last supper he had with his disciples. You explain all that, and people are going through it with you. You'll never forget that. Because it's not just something that's heard about. It's something that you actually participated in. All right, I'm still going with explaining these things, okay? There's a principle in the occult, and, and if you'll bear with me, this will help explain some things. But there's a principle in the occult called egregore, and what that is... It's where if you keep doing something over and over and over, it becomes like a stronghold with a strong man. And the best example is Islam. Here comes Muhammad. He goes into Mecca, and he decides that Allah, this little moon god there, that that god is the one true god, and all these other gods in Mecca are not. So he starts kicking over all the other idols. And he's demanding that everybody's got his little army. He's demanding everybody start worshiping Allah, the moon god. And if they don't, then he's going to kill them. And so he begins this bloody rampage. 
And so now, you know, thousands of years later or whatever, um, people have been doing this now for so long that Islam has become a stronghold with a strong man. I believe the Bible, when it talked about the prince of Persia, I believe it was a reference to that principality most likely. But how many knows that that is a stronghold with a strong man and it is a demonic evil thing with blood, with human blood sacrifice going. That's what that terrorism is in case somebody didn't know. It's just human sacrifice to a demon God. That's it. So it's become a stronghold. Now, the principle here is, is if you do something over and over, it's interesting because in the Bible, there's this concept about redigging the wells of revival. You remember how Abraham dug the wells and then the Philistines came and stopped it up. And then um, Isaac had to come and redig the wells once again. And Lou Engel wrote a book called Redigging the Wells of Revival. And in that book, he's talking about how there were revivals of times past. But as we begin to pray and press into God, even though the Philistines have come and kind of stopped up those wells, that you can kind of redig the wells of past revivals through prayer. It's a powerful concept. But I would say that that concept also applies with some of these Hebrew roots because these feast days, these holy times, have been something that's been going on now for 3,500 years. Think about that. There's something that over the years, over the centuries, over the millennia, that is, as so many people participate in these things, there's something in that that's really powerful that you're tapping into that's of God. It's the only way I know how to explain it. Some of it's just going to have to be spiritual. The Holy Spirit has to help people understand it. Because it's not the letter of the law. It's not about being saved or being righteous or being more spiritual than somebody else or any of that garbage. But there is something to it. There's benefits. There, there's a depth there of understanding. There's, there's a blessing that comes on people. Another thing that was really interesting to me was we've ministered to people that's come out of Satanism and the occult. And one lady was telling me, um, her name was Tammy, and Sandy will remember who I'm talking about. Really nice lady, but she grew up in Satanism, and she was saying that during the Satanic feast times, when they had their evil days, she said it was as though what was in hell would draw closer to the earth. And that veil that separated them from the demonic realm, it seemed like it became really close. And see, Satan counterfeits everything that God does. I believe during these, these times, these feast days, these holy times, that it's as though heaven is drawing near. And these are times when God's presence increases. I also believe that there's an increase of angelic activity. Just like in the dark realm, with those that serve the enemy, there's an increase of the demonic activity. During these holy times, there seems to be an increase of the angelic activity in the earth. So these are benefits, these are things that have really impacted my life and my family in this ministry. As we have um, set apart these times and I taught on them and we would kind of participate, the presence of God, the blessing of God has come in so powerful. And a lot of people may not know this. I knew this for years and that's probably why 
God had already primed me and made me very ready for all of this years ago, but but this was something that Brownsville really embraced before the revival broke out at Brownsville. Dick Rubin came, and he ministered a lot along these lines, and um, he held a Passover meal with them. Um, He talked about Hanukkah and, and lit the Hanukkah menorah, and he taught the church about all these things. And because the church really embraced the Hebrew roots, um, Brother Kilpatrick and Dick Rubin both felt that that did have something to do with the revival that broke out. All right, so here's something that also goes back to our Hebrew roots. And that is what's called slichot times of prayer. And what slichot means is like pardon us or forgive us, okay? So before the, the Passover time in the feast, the, the Passover feast in the spring, it's interesting because the people of Israel were always supposed to purge the yeast out of their homes. And so they would go through their homes and they would begin to purge out any bread, any yeast, anything that was in the home, put it in a bag, take it outside, and all the other homes were doing this in their neighborhood. So there would be like this pile of bread and any type of yeast or anything that's piled up in the street and they would burn it. And so all the yeast had to be purged out. And even to this day, during the different reading portions that go on throughout the year, before Passover is um, a reading portion, uh, Shabbat Para, which has to do with Numbers 19, the, those that know about the red heifer the, that has to be burned and then the cleansing. But it has to do with cleansing. And so before Passover, the yeast speaks of sin, that this is a time when God is really calling people to prayer. And what happens during these slichot times of prayer is this. Number one, teshuva, which means repentance. This is a time to really repent and deeply consecrate your life unto God. Number two, tefillah is a time of prayer and fasting. Number three, tzedakah has to do with giving unto the Lord. Can you imagine what it would be like if churches across America, that they sincerely began, that before these times, they said, the pastor got up and said, guys, We need to spend time before God in prayer and fasting and repentance. I want everybody to go through your life and your home and begin to clean house. Get the stuff out that needs to go. Let's really get things right with God. We're all going to do this together corporately. We're going to have a time of corporate prayer and fasting and repentance. And those that feel led to, to give a gift unto the Lord. And we're really going to set apart this church as holy unto God. What would happen in churches? The presence and power of God. See, I think a lot of people here maybe take things for granted because you're so used to it. This isn't going on everywhere. The presence of God doesn't come in like this everywhere. It's not common. Like here it's common. Somebody gets prayer and they get healed. I mean, it's not even a big deal anymore. It's like, yeah, okay, you know, the pain left, they're, they're healed. And people get delirious. So it's just common. But it's not like that everywhere. I believe that if people would begin to come together in prayer and fasting and repentance, that what could God do? It would be amazing. And so that happens before Passover, but also before the fall feast is a time, once again, of the slichot time of prayer and repentance. So I believe this is how God, His plan, I believe this was God's plan for the New Testament church to understand these things and apply these things. That if we will do that, it helps to keep the church purged It helps to keep the heavens purged and to really go deep into his manifest presence. People are awfully quiet tonight. 
But this, this right here is important, what I'm saying. Amen? If we as, as churches could really come together and unify about some of these things, I believe it would make a huge difference. All right, so let me shift gears now, and we'll start moving toward a close. But understanding the lunar Hebrew calendar. So you're going to have to look at some of these pictures in just a moment, okay? But in the world system, where we have the solar calendar, our day ends at 11.59 and begins at midnight, right? So, there's, so the day ends and begins in darkness. Are y'all hearing me? The day ends and begins in darkness. But the Hebrew mindset begins in darkness at sunset, but it ends in light. See, the Hebrew day begins at sunset. But it ends the next evening in light. And so that whole concept, that, that comes because in the Bible in Genesis says there was evening, then there was morning, then the next day. That's where it comes from. The calendar that most of the world uses today is a solar Gregorian calendar. This calendar was named after the man who first introduced it in February uh, 1582, which uh, Pope Gregory VIII that calendar was itself a revision of the Julian calendar implemented in 45 B.C. by Julius Caesar. It is based upon the number of days it takes the earth to circle the sun. Since it takes 365 and a fourth days to circle the sun, we add one day every four years known as a leap year to keep things in season. So everything with the solar calendar has to do with us revolving around the sun, okay? But this is completely different when you're dealing with the Hebrew calendar. The Hebrew calendar is uh, it's a lunar monthly calendar. It's based on the moon circling the earth, which happens every 29 and a half days. Therefore, in a 12-month year, it's only about 354 days. And so to make things right in connection with the solar, solar calendar, an extra month is added every couple years it's called a leap month. And this would be kind of like having two Februaries in a year. So Adar, which was last, you know, recently we just had this, okay? Adar 1, Adar 2, and then it goes into Nisan. You just add another month every couple years, and that's called a pregnant year to kind of keep things lined up. But to understand this, I want you to look at these pictures real quick. All right, so on the bottom, you see there the solar calendar. You see in the bottom middle, there's the sun. And you see all of our planets here in our galaxy, all of us rotating around the sun. The closest planet, Mercury, then Venus and the Earth. But look at the Earth is in the middle. And the Earth, we have the moon circling the Earth. So while the world system is connected to this solar calendar of us circling the sun... The Hebrew calendar is connected to the moon circling the earth. And if you look in the middle of the page and you see the lunar phases, and you look on the left, that gives you the different, um, as the moon is circling the earth, the different phases. It's like the sunlight's coming from the bottom toward the earth, and it goes counterclockwise. It's a new moon, then crescent, then quarter, then gibbous, then a full moon. And then it goes back down to a new moon, and that happens every four weeks, Okay. And that is the lunar calendar. And so every time there's a new moon, that is a new Hebrew month.
And so God was trying to get the children of Israel to get off of a solar calendar. When they left Egypt, God wanted Israel to disconnect from Egypt completely. And the very first thing that traditionally that was done was Israel sanctified the new moon and God was getting them to disconnect from the Egyptian system and he was giving them now a totally different system to live by. See, to this day, whenever the children of Israel would go into the tabernacle, if you remember, the, the, the gate to go into the tabernacle was on the east. So to go to the tabernacle in the morning time, you would have to turn your back on the sun and you would have to look toward the tabernacle where you had that pillar of fire at night and the cloud by day. And you'd be looking at that cloud of God's presence and you were turning your back on this world system and you were looking into the God of Abraham. And it's interesting because even science in many ways, I believe, is, is starting to see. Let me give you some examples. Science talks about the Big Bang, okay? And people make a lot of jokes about that. But I really believe that there was something when God spoke, let there be light when God spoke, I really believe that there was like a thunderous explosion of power that set things in motion. And I really believe that, okay? Um, They don't understand that, obviously. And then science as well. Like, for example... Um, In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, this was such a jolt on creation. I don't think any of us can really understand how much of like a spiritual earthquake shook that, that system that God had created. And scholars believe that before that, that maybe the earth wasn't even turned on its axis, but because of the sin of man, that it was such a jolt that it turned the earth on its axis. And to this day... That's actually what what causes the seasons. A lot of people don't know that, but the earth being on its axis is what the turning there, that actually has to do with the seasons. And the Bible talks about sowing and reaping in in the different seasons. And something I've always wondered about, I don't know if I can prove this or not, but science says that there was like an ice age. There was some kind of a meteor that struck the earth in the ice age. I wonder, and I speculate about this, could there have been something, because Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth. Could there have been something in ancient times past where in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was already there uh, whenever we come into the creation story. God didn't say let there be an earth. It was there. It was in some kind of a destroyed condition. Could it have been that back in ancient times, that when Satan and a third of the angels fell, that God kind of gathered them, gathered them up and threw them down to the earth and they fell like lightning and struck the earth and God allowed the earth to be maybe flooded and he turned off the sun, moon, and stars and there it was in a destroyed condition. And science says, well, there was some kind of an asteroid that hit the earth and all that, but maybe that fall of Satan was the asteroid. I'm just speculating. There's a lot of things that I wonder about with this. Uh, for example, I can't prove this, but I wonder that whenever volcano eruptions are happening, is hell possibly enlarging itself to house more and more people going down in there? I can't prove it. I'm just trying to say that a lot of this science is just understanding it from an atheist perspective, 
But when you look at it through the lens of the Bible, things look a lot different and make a lot more sense. Some of the things that science teaches is so ridiculous and absurd. It would take a lot more faith to believe in some of the ridiculous things I've heard come out of science than it would just to believe the simplicity of the Bible. And so God was trying to get Israel to disconnect from that solar satanic system and begin to look to a lunar system that he had given them. And here's the last couple things. The Korban Tamid. This was the morning and evening sacrifices. The morning and evening sacrifices, when you read about this in the Bible, every morning at 9 o'clock and every evening at 3 o'clock, there was the morning and evening sacrifice. There had to be a lamb that was sacrificed. And this, God told them this was to be, to, to be done eternally. It was to be done throughout all generations. It was not going to end. And I believe there's something to this, even to this day in Christianity, that there's something about spending time with God in the mornings, and there's something about praying in the evening before you go to bed. There's something about that that's powerful. And it, it was interesting to me, because you read about in the Bible, there's two different words, chronos and kairos timing. And the chronos timing is just like your clock. You keep doing the same thing. Every day it's just like a clock. But the Kairos timing is when God moves and something significant is going to happen. And here Israel was doing these morning and evening sacrifices every day. And listen to some of the things that would happen. In Acts 2, 14 through 16, Peter stood up and preached at the time of the morning sacrifice. And 3,000 people got saved on the day of Pentecost. In 1 Kings 18, 36 through 38, fire from God came and burned up Elijah's sacrifice when he was confronting the prophets of Baal and people turned to God they repented but this happened at the time of the evening sacrifice the Bible says so in Daniel 9 20 through 21 when Daniel prayed the angel came to him but during the time of the evening sacrifice in Luke 1 5 through 11 Zechariah was burning incense unto the Lord the angel appeared to him and told him he was going to have a son John the Baptist that happened around the time of the evening sacrifice. In Acts 10, 1 through 4, Cornelius had a visitation from the angel around the time of the evening sacrifice. In Acts 3, 1, a crippled man was healed around the time of the evening sacrifice. So, or the morning sacrifice, I believe there, that might be a typo. But it was connected to these morning and evening sacrifices. Some of these things, what I'm trying to get at is some of these things as they translate now into the New Testament times. We need to understand the lunar calendar because we've got to understand how God is speaking in these last days. And there's certain things that people are not going to understand unless they understand the, um, the Hebrew calendar. Let me show you one real quick. The ninth of Av, the month of Av, okay? The ninth of Av has been marked by being a very negative time for Israel. This is in the reference sheet. I mean, you can look at it later. But according to rabbinic teaching, God decreed that the children of Israel would not enter the promised land due to their unbelief. This gave access to demonic attack. This happened on the 9th of Av. The children of Israel had the ten spies that came back with a negative report and that God declared to them, because of your negative report, your unbelief, you will not enter the promised land. This happened on the 9th of Av. 
So down through the centuries, this somehow gave some kind of access for some kind of demonic attack. Listen to all the stuff that's happened on the night of Av. In 586 B.C., the first temple was destroyed. In 70 A.D., the second temple was destroyed. This happened on the ninth of Av. In 70 A.D., it fulfilled Jesus' prophecy. In 135, this was during the time of, of Hadrian's reign, those that remember him, Rome's takeover of Israel was complete on the ninth of Av. And in 136, the Roman emperor desecrated the temple. This both happened on the ninth of Av. In 1096, Pope Urban II declared the first crusade murdering masses of Jews on the, on the ninth of Av. The Jews were expelled from England in 1290 on the ninth of Av. In 1306, Jews were expelled from France on the 9th of Av. In 1492, Jews were expelled from Spain. And this was the Spanish Inquisition. This happened at the 9th of Av. In 1648, thousands of Jews massacred in Poland. 1914, World War I began on the 9th of Av and culminated in World War II. And when Hitler made the decree about the slaughtering of Jews, it was connected to the 9th of Av. Isn't this ridiculous how many things have happened on the 9th of Av? In 2005... Um, the Jews were expelled out of Gaza. This was in your lifetime, so you should know, you should remember this. The Jews were expelled from Gaza under George W. Bush, and it happened on the ninth of off. And Ariel Sharon came under judgment because of that. And in 2013, this was very recent, the European Union announced that all written cooperative agreements by its member states with Israel must state that East Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria are not considered Israel and cannot benefit from any EU agreements. That happened on the 9th of all. See, but people would not see this unless they understand to look at the Hebrew calendar. The only way you're going to know about these things and connect the dots, how could you connect the dots of all these things happening through history if you did not know that it happened, if you didn't connect the ninth of of that Hebrew month, if you're looking at it from a solar calendar, it's going to stagger in the dates. All right, so here's the last couple things. If you look in there, I gave you the God's appointed times. You have to look, I think it's in your reference sheet. God's appointed times. It's a lot of information tonight, but guys, we've got to know this. We've got to know this stuff. We're living in the last days, and to understand what God's doing in these times, we need to understand these things I'm preaching on. It's important. God's appointed times. On the right, around 3 o'clock in there, okay, is the month of Nisan. That's what we're in right now. And that is Nisan 1 is the biblical new year. And two weeks into that is Passover. And you can follow that thing all the way around, and it explains the feast days connected with the Hebrew months. And it even has in the middle um, the Gregorian calendar so that you can kind of see approximately what month it falls in. But you have right there at 3 o'clock in Nisan, you have Passover. Then you go 50 days to um, the month of Sivan, Sivan, and that is Pentecost time. And then you see Av, and then you see Elul. And Elul is when there's a lot of repentance. And then Tishri is when you have like um, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and the Day of Atonement, or um, Tabernacles. And then you go into Kislev, and you have the Hanukkah time. 
and then Adar and you have Purim. But this is God's appointed times. You can look over this later when you get home and it goes through it. It explains what's going on. It's connected to an agricultural system. Just like, for example, the Philistines were fishermen. That's why they had a demon fish god that they worship and put up in their temple. And to this day, the Pope and them have that, that fish hat that is connected to Dagon. I'm just telling you, that's the fact. But it's, they were on this system of where they depended on the ocean. God made Israel to be an agricultural society because they would understand sowing and reaping. And they would also understand that when you reap a harvest, it has to do, later on, it would have to do with souls being saved. And he put them on that agricultural system so that he could use that to explain so many things to them. That's why Jesus, when he came, he explained a lot. For example, he gave the parable of the seed and the sower because they're going to understand about sowing seed. They're in an agricultural society. And so all of these feast times were connected. Like, for example, Passover was connected with the barley harvest. Pentecost was connected with the wheat harvest. And then the fall feast were connected with the grape harvest. All right, so this was God's calendar. God set something up where every week there would be a Sabbath, the Lord's Day. And every Hebrew month, at the turn of that month, would be called in the Bible the new moon, which is called Rosh Kodesh, and that that would be a time to uh, blast the shofar and set apart the new moon. And then he gave those seven feast days, and then two were added later, Hanukkah and Purim. But these were on his calendar. These were his timing, his, his festivals. Now, Satan counterfeits everything that God does. And so I kind of created this to help you see the satanic feast time so that you intercessors can be praying. So now if you could look at that, that's the black one, and it's got the, the different satanic feast times. I'll go real quickly. But just like God has his calendar, Satan has his calendar. And these are the things that, that Satan's servants connect to this evil calendar, okay? It begins, if you look right at 12 o'clock, you see, we would pronounce that Samhain, but it's really Samhain, and it goes back to a Gaelic festival that we know as Halloween, but it's a very satanic thing that came out of, like, Ireland, Scotland, Wales area. That's a, that Celtic area. All right, so this is... Halloween time, right there at 12 o'clock, this is considered in Satan's kingdom the new year. This is supposedly Satan's birthday. <laughs> and this is the time when there's human sacrifice and all this horrible stuff's going on. After that, everybody knows October 31st, around that time frame. After that, you have Yuletide, which falls around Christmas time. And this is another satanic feast. Then you have Imbolc after that, which falls usually in February. And then you have Ostara, which falls in March time. And then you have Beltane. Now, Beltane is also very evil. It's right there. It would be 6 o'clock, okay? Beltane. This actually is May 1st. And just like, for example, Halloween is believed like I don't really want to go too much into this, but the god, the goddess and the horn god, there's these dual male and female thing in the occult. 
And during the time of Halloween is when like the horn god comes up and emerges. But then around Beltane, he goes down and that goddess, female deity, begins to come to power. And so then you have Midsummer's Eve, Lamas, Harvest Home, and weekly, the witches have a weekly Sabbath to counterfeit God's Sabbath day. <laughs> and where the Bible has things to be, uh, his holy time to be at the new moon, the witches and people and the Satanists meet at the full moon. And you'll see the equinoxes and solstices in this, okay? But this is Satan's calendar. This is when his people are doing their thing. And when people get saved, I think it's important just from my experience with my wife, if they get saved out of this stuff, they need to disconnect to this calendar, but it would really help them if they would start connecting to God's calendar. I really believe it would. But anyway, I shared this because I want you to be aware of this calendar. This would be something that intercessors need to be praying during these times and ask God to send his angels and block what Satan's trying to do and that these people that are participating pray that they'll get saved, but that Satan's plans will be canceled. All right, here's the last two things. So during this Passover time that we're coming into, it's a time of spiritual cleansing. When we're purging the yeast out, okay? Passover starts... This coming Friday night, and we'll go for seven days. In America, they add an eighth day. But anyway, it'll go for seven days. And this is a time to purge the yeast out of our lives. I want you to be in prayer between now and Passover and ask God, show me if there's anything in my life or my home that I need to get out. And something, if you want to do it, you could do this. I'm going to do this, my wife and I, but during Passover, so starting next Friday, my wife and I are going to be fasting um, yeast, and we're going to pray as we're fasting. We're going to believe God to really do a deep consecration, not only in our lives, but the church. And I believe this fast, the fast of yeast that's been there for 3,500 years, I believe that this fast has to do with that. It's like really consecrating yourself unto God and asking God, Lord, I just lay my life down on the altar burn out everything needs to go i mean show me if there's something there help me to get free let there be a deep consecration in my life and my family okay so if people want to do that we're going to start that next friday and also next saturday we're going to have passover and go through that so it's going to be awesome but let me close by reading this before the crucifixion through that to the ascension And this is where we need to understand our Hebrew roots. Remember me saying that the Catholic Church has Jesus dying on Friday and then raising from the dead Sunday morning? It doesn't make sense. All right. So let me show you if you go back to the Hebrew roots. Now listen to how amazing the Bible is. The Bible paints a picture. Six days before Passover, Jesus goes to Lazarus' house in Bethany and raises Lazarus from the dead. So this is six days before Passover. Well, needless to say, this really stirred up a lot of activity. And people, everybody wanted to go out and see the guy that was dead, that's raised from the dead now. And Pharisees came and they were very upset 
because they knew that everybody was going to really start believing in Jesus because, I mean, he raised somebody from the dead, you know. So this happened six days before Passover. Now Passover is starting to draw near when Jesus was going to die. And this was interesting because as Passover lambs were being brought into Jerusalem, all these Passover, think about 2.5 million people. And there's a lamb for every 10 people. Think about how many lambs are coming in. Okay, So while the lambs are being brought into Jerusalem, Jesus is entering the east gate. And all the people were at first, they were singing and they were waving what is known as the lulav, the palm branches. They were singing and rejoicing, watching all the lambs come in. But now Jesus is coming riding a colt. And he's coming in the eastern gate, and all of a sudden, all their praise and all their adulation turns to him. They start waving the palm branches, and they're singing, and they're laying him down in front of him, and they're praising. And the priests were getting pretty ticked off about this. And during this time, Jesus was heard weeping over Jerusalem, stating because they did not accept him, they would be destroyed. And then he returns to Bethany. The next morning, going toward Jerusalem, Jesus sees a fig tree, and it was not producing fruit, so he cursed it. And something about this fig tree a lot of people don't realize is is the fig tree in the Bible always speaks of Israel. And Jesus was prophesying through this that because Israel was going to reject their Messiah, that they were going to wither and stop bearing fruit. And so Jesus enters the temple. Now, this is something a lot of people may not have known, okay? Jesus enters the temple, and he drove out the money changers, which we're all familiar with that story. But there's more to this story than what people realize. In John two thirteen, it says that it was around Passover time, and Jesus goes into the temple and drives out the money changers. But this was in John 2. This was at the beginning of his ministry. So Jesus does this again in Mark 11 at the end of his ministry. So we have on record that Jesus actually did this twice. And it's a good possibility he might have done it three times and one time isn't recorded. Let me tell you why. Right at Passover, all of Israel is purging all the yeast out of their homes. Remember that? They're gathering up in the streets and they're burning it. While Israel, the father of each household, is overseeing this process, taking his little children through and showing them we've got to get all the yeast out of the house. Mom's to clean the kitchen. We're going to go through and get all the bread, any crumbs, anything that's got yeast. We're going to get it out, purge it out, and we're going to put it in the street and we're going to burn it. While that's going on, Jesus, right before Passover, is going to his father's house and purging the yeast out. This is where the Hebrew roots start really connecting some dots that we didn't see before. And Jesus goes back now, and Peter and them see the fig tree withered. All right, so Jesus goes back into Jerusalem again. And some of the Greeks wanted to see Jesus. Remember, Jesus prays. There's a thunderous voice from heaven. Now, Mark 12, 13, this is interesting. Four days now before Passover... An inspection of the lambs begin. 
the priests are going through each lamb and making sure they're without blemish. While that's going on, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and the religious Pharisees and religious leaders surround him and they begin to try to find fault in him. So while the priests are examining the lambs, they're also examining the Lamb of God for fault and found nothing in him. Because he's about to be the ultimate Passover lamb. He's got to be without blemish. Jesus leaves Jerusalem with his disciples and reveals to them that the temple would be destroyed. And remember Matthew 24, he starts going through the end times and explaining it all to them. Then we read that he went to a house and a woman poured some real expensive oil upon his feet. And remember Judas was mad because he said that could have been sold for a lot of money. But Jesus said, no, she is anointing me and preparing me for burial. Leave her alone. And the disciples begin to prepare now for the Passover meal, which would be observed that evening. In John 13, 23, in that evening, this would be Tuesday evening, Jesus meets with his disciples for the Passover Seder meal that is celebrated every year. And he has that meal with his disciples. And we know the story. Judas, Satan enters Judas. He leaves to go betray him. But Jesus doesn't finish the meal completely. And I'll explain more about that next week. He doesn't drink the fourth cup. And he leaves there with his disciples to go to the Mount of Olives. And they're singing out of Psalms. They're singing the Hallel hymns. And Jesus begins to teach them there at the Mount of Olives. This was right before Judas is about to come with the armed soldiers. Jesus begins to teach them John 14 about the Holy Spirit. When I go, I will send you a comforter. He begins to teach them in John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You better stay connected in me if you want to bear fruit. He teaches them John 16 to encourage them. Then he prays for them in John 17. And he prays, Father, that they will be one as you and I are one. And he's praying for them that none of them would be lost. And Jesus tells his disciples, he takes Peter, James, and John a little further with him, but he tells them, guys, my soul is vexed within me. I've got to go pray. Could you please pray? And he goes off to pray by himself for an hour, and he comes back, and they're asleep. Now, to their defense, there's no telling how strong the spiritual oppression is starting to settle down on these guys, okay? And Jesus says, can't you tarry with me one hour? Then he goes back and prays again for another hour and comes back. And he does the same thing. Jesus did that three times. So he prayed for three hours while they keep falling asleep. The third time he comes back and he basically basically says, guys, it's over now. Prayer time's done. Judas arrives in the Garden of Gethsemane accompanied by armed officers and betrays Jesus with a kiss. Peter gets upset and cuts the ear off of one of the Roman soldiers. And Jesus heals his ear. Now, around 2 a.m., they had just had the Passover Seder meal just a few hours back, okay? Now at 2 a.m. in the morning, 
This would be Wednesday morning, 2 a.m. Jesus is being interrogated by Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. You guys remember the story. Jesus is standing before them. People are spitting on him. People are mocking him. All these false accusations are being leveled against him. And he's just standing there, not answering a word. He's already been interrogated by the priest. I mean, he's, he's a lamb without blemish. But at some point in time, Caiaphas, sitting in the high priest's office, says, I adjure you that you tell me, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus had to answer him because under law, he had to answer that question. Or he would be in sin, and Jesus was, knew no sin. And so he said, it is as you say, and you will see the Son of Man coming in clouds of glory. And Caiaphas gets so angry that he rips his priestly garments, which you can see there. And the Bible expressly says that that blue tunic was to never be ripped. And when Caiaphas did that, those that were there that knew that that blue tunic was to never be ripped under any circumstance, this was a penalty unto death, some of them would have been shocked that he had the nerve to do that. But he ripped his garments and he said blasphemy. Jesus is speaking blasphemy. We've heard enough. And what Caiaphas didn't really understand was, was that he was prophesying that the old Aaronic priesthood was being ripped and done away with. And Jesus was now going to be our great high priest. And it's interesting that Jesus' tunic, which probably would be like an outer... Um, tunic with the tassels on it. It was probably a tallit of, of some kind, a prayer shawl. Anyway, that tunic, that when he was on the cross, the Roman soldiers never tore his garment. They cast lots and it stayed in one piece. I believe what God is saying there was as Caiaphas ripped those priestly garments, God was saying that order of priesthood is dying now. And Jesus now, his garments are not going to be ripped. His order of priesthood will live on forever. So the sun rises. Judas repents for what he did. He goes and tries to return the money. And then he goes and hangs himself. So now it's around 7 or 8 o'clock a.m. Jesus has not slept at all. I'm sure he's been through a lot of beatings. And, and uh, I mean, you can only imagine And so anyway, the Jewish leaders take Jesus now. They've already tried him. They've already beaten him and mocked him and everything else. Now they drag him before Pilate. And they're stirring up the crowd to have him flogged. And they want to have Barabbas released instead of Jesus. And they stir up the crowd to begin to shout that he be crucified. We know he was flogged. His back was plowed open. He was brought back. And now... They have the crowd stirred up saying, crucify him. And Pilate, no doubt, was completely dumbfounded. Why are these people so bent on having this man crucified when he's done nothing to deserve death? And Pilate makes them bring out a bowl of water and he washes his hands of the situation and says, if you want to crucify him, you crucify him. But I don't find any reason to kill this man. He's an innocent man. And they responded, let his blood be on us and our children. So now Jesus is carrying his cross down the road to Golgotha. At 9 a.m., exactly at the time of the morning sacrifice, Jesus is nailed to the cross and lifted up between two thieves. He's hanging there for three hours. 
The evening sacrifice is normally at 3 o'clock, but because they have to sacrifice a Passover lamb, they have to move it back to noon. And so right at noon, the evening sacrifice is taking place, and all of a sudden, darkness starts coming over Jesus. This darkness starts filling the sky. I believe that the sins of humanity were settling upon Jesus at noon. And Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what happened was the sins of humanity were settling on Jesus like a thick black garment. And God the Father had to turn away from looking at that sin, but Jesus felt that sin form almost like a disconnect. And he felt that, and he cried out, Why are you forsaking me? At 3 o'clock now, the Passover lamb is to be sacrificed. And as the Passover lamb is sacrificed at 3 o'clock, that lamb was, had been inspected. Now the high priest oversaw it being sacrificed. And at some point in time, that high priest would lift his hands like this, and he would say, Negmar, which means, it is finished. And it was interesting that our great high priest, at that very moment, was on the cross with his arms spread, And he also said, it is finished. The chief priest didn't want anybody on the cross for this holy time. And so they asked for the Roman soldiers to break their legs so they would die more quickly. But whenever they got to Jesus, Jesus had already died. And they stuck the spear in his side. Blood and water came out. And they realized he was dead. And so Joseph of Arimathea, a rich member of the Sanhedrin, took Jesus and had him wrapped and buried in his tomb. All of this was prophesied because Jesus was not to have bones broken and Jesus would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Everything was prophesied in the Bible. And Joseph of Arimathea had him buried in his tomb. And what was interesting about this, Jesus died on Passover day, but he was buried that evening. Remember, their days begin in the evening, right at the Feast of Unleavened Bread as it began. Jesus, his body was without any sin. That's why the Bible says, I will not let my Holy One see decay. Jesus' body did not rot or decay in the tomb because he had no sin in him. So Jesus, is laying, his body is laying in that tomb. It's not decaying. It's without sin. And it's laying there during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right after Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That while Israel is eating unleavened bread, Jesus is fulfilling that feast by being the ultimate unleavened bread as his body was in that tomb. So this was from Wednesday night to Thursday night, from Thursday night to Friday night, from Friday night to Saturday night, three full days, three full nights, Jesus' body is in the tomb. Jesus went down into the underworld. He confronted Satan. He took the keys of death, hell, and the grave. Those that had died under Moses... We're in paradise, and Jesus brought them out. And Jesus raises from the dead late Saturday evening, which was the first day of first fruits. Jesus was the first fruits of what God was doing. And he fulfilled Passover, he fulfilled unleavened bread, and he fulfilled first fruits. And we know when he raised from the dead on first fruits, 
Mary Magdalene saw him, and he told her, he said, listen, don't touch me because I haven't ascended yet. There was some kind of a secret ascension where Jesus took those people out of paradise and took them up to heaven. And some biblical scholars believe maybe Jesus made atonement of some kind in heaven for even the original rebellion that Lucifer led. Jesus is now the great high priest. But on first fruits is when the priest begins to take a sheaf and it's called an omer, and he begins to wave that sheaf before God on the first day of first fruits. And every day they have the counting of the omer. Every day they have to wave a sheaf. So this is day one, day two, day three. And it goes all the way up to Pentecost to day 50. And so during this time of the counting of the omer, Jesus is appearing. He comes back and he's appearing to people. Remember, he came through the wall. And freaked out his disciples. He appeared to the men on the road to Emmaus. He appeared on the seashore. And this is all happening during that counting of the Omer. And on the 40th day of the counting of the Omer, Jesus was on the Mount of Olives. And he tells his disciples, you need to go wait in Jerusalem until you be clothed with power from on high. And he ascends. So this is the second time he's ascended. He's standing on the Mount of Olives. He begins to float up in the sky. And all the disciples are watching him disappear into a cloud. And the angels that are standing there tell the disciples, Why are you staring into the sky? The same way that he left is the same way he's coming. So just like he kind of had an ascension that happened that we don't know a lot about. There's going to be a catching away of the bride at the rapture. And it's going to be kind of a secret thing, but yet the results of it are going to be known all over the world. But he's going to come like a thief in the night. But in the same way he left the Mount of Olives, in his second coming, his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives. They're going to split in two, and he's going to go into Jerusalem and take over. And 500 people saw Jesus during that time. The disciples stayed in Jerusalem and prayed. From the 40th to the 50th day of the counting of the Omer, they were there for those 10 days in Jerusalem. No doubt they would have been taking their gifts to the temple. They would have been immersing themselves in water. They would have been doing everything that everybody else was doing. They were preparing themselves for the the Feast of Pentecost, which is called Shavuot. And there they were in Jerusalem. And on the day of Pentecost, while they're praying and worshiping, the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that was the birth of the church. I shared all that because I wanted you to see that all of the dots get connected when you understand the Hebrew roots. All right, we're going to pray for people here in just a moment. But Lord, I've got I to close this out and I just pray for everybody here. It's a lot of information. But we need to understand these things. We need to understand that you're moving in the Hebrew calendar. We need to understand your times and seasons. We need to understand what you're doing in the earth. And as Christians, we're engrafted into that olive tree in Christ that goes back to these roots. The roots that go back to Abraham. And Lord, I pray that everything that's been taught tonight, as your people go back over these notes and look over these things, 
Lord, that this would really get into us. We need to understand these things. It would not just be something that's heard and then forgotten. But, Lord, it's something that really gets into who we are. And we remember this information, Lord. We thank you for it. We bless you. In Jesus' name, seal this night. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and shut down recordings, please. And I want you to begin to play that iPod for me. Listen, we're going to pray.